Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Next Gen Cast. My name's Nish Manik and I'm a GP in Cambridge. And for this episode, we have a podcast takeover with one of our wonderful Next Gen GPs in Nottingham, Dr. Sarah Armitage. She got in touch with me to say how much she was loving the podcast. And having heard her do an interview at a Next Gen event, I just thought she'd be a great choice to take over the podcast hosting this month so you don't need to hear my voice for a change. And this episode is with Dame Helen Stokes Lampard. Here's a snippet of what's to come. I remember waking up the morning after being elected and flooding you know, with imposter syndrome. What on earth have they just done? I can't possibly do this. And within a day or two, suddenly you're just so busy with the job that you've forgotten those feelings. But they do come back at times to all of us at, at different stages. And we forget the journey we've all been on to get there. So that was just a sneak preview of what's to come in this episode. But let me tell you more about Helen. So Dame Helen Stokes Lampard, as she subsequently became known after the podcast was recorded, will be a familiar name and voice to many of you. You might have heard her in the media or giving speeches in her role as former chair of the Royal College of GPs. Or if you're a next gen GP, you've probably heard her somewhere at a next gen event for us, given that she's kindly accepted so many invitations over the years. She's currently chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, chair of the National Academy of Social Prescribing, and she's a GP partner practising in Lichfield in Staffordshire. If that wasn't enough, she's also a professor of GP education at Birmingham University, having risen through the ranks in that department since she was a GP registrar. And she's a visiting chair at her old medical school, St George's, in London. And many of you will know her as the former chair of the RCGP from 2016 to 2019, during which time she was never really that far from our TV screens or radios, trying to really ensure that the voice of general practice and GPs was understood and fairly represented. And at the time, she was called one of the most inspiring and influential GPs in the country. Helen was appointed to Damehood in the 2022 New Year's Honours for Services to General Practice. So in this conversation, led by Sarah Armitage, Helen talks about her leadership journey from being a trainee to a dame, how she really found the courage to go for some of the biggest roles in general practice. And she offers some really sound advice on giving and receiving feedback, work-life balance and dealing with the imposter syndrome. So thank you so much to Sarah, who took on the mantle of podcast hosting and really rose to the challenge. And here is episode 27, the Dame Helen Stokes Lampard. So Professor Helen Stokes Lampard, welcome to the Next Gen Cast. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us today. You're such a supporter of Next Gen and have spoken at many of our events. It's a real privilege for us to spend some time with you. Oh, thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be back. Um, how are you today? I'm marvellous, thank you. I apologise if there are any odd noises in the background. However, I have builders doing work on my roof at the house, so I hope they won't be too intrusive. I have warned them to try and be quiet, but I can't promise. We'll cross our fingers. I want, if I may, to start at the beginning. You're a really prominent GP and leader, and we are going to talk about that in a bit. But I wondered... When did you first realise you wanted to become a doctor? 
<laughs> well, it's really interesting. Like many kids, my mum has a photo of me in a nurse's uniform when I was about three, pushing my teddy in a wheelbarrow. Um, I was clearly patient. Um, but probably it was when I was in my teens that I started thinking seriously about it. I mean, you know, they, people ask you what you're going to do when you grow up. But I sort of had this impression that medicine was something somewhat unobtainable. Um, and at that time, somebody suggested dentistry to me as a, a good option. Um, and so I, I initially really thought about dentistry and went down that route and spent some time working with a friend who was a dentist. It was only really when I got my, oh, this gives my age away, my O-level results. I was the last year that I ever did O-levels. That, and I went to Sixth Form College that immediately the teachers, and I was always going to do all the sciences, and my teachers immediately started talking about medicine and seemed really surprised that I hadn't been encouraged and nurtured down that route. And of course, that opened my eyes to the possibilities and the huge breadth that a medical degree offered. So I refocused and I actually went to medical school fully intending to be a gynae oncologist. That was where my attention had gone. Strange how life works out. Isn't it just? And I think I'm really interested to think about that teenager, my sort of mind lighting up in school where someone goes, have you thought about doing medicine? And I wonder what she would think of you now, because you are Professor Helen Stokes Lampard, Chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, GP Partner, Chair of the National Academy of Social Prescribers, Professor of GP Education at the University of Birmingham, Trustee of Macmillan Cancer and a host of other roles. Do you think she'd believe it? No, I don't think she would. I think she would be completely bewildered. Um, I, I was brought up in sort of a well, village, I guess, the large village, small town when I grew up was a former mining community. I went to a pretty tough, comprehensive school. I, I didn't have a deprived childhood. My parents were both teachers, so I, I'm not pleading that. But, it, but kids from our area didn't become national anything. So my role models were very local um, and regional at best. And I, I don't think my horizons were that high. So I would have been, I think, bewildered by that, uh, probably slightly in awe of it, which, of course, now seems really quite laughable, doesn't it, the way life works out. But likewise, I wouldn't have been intimidated to talk to somebody if I'd been introduced to because I also hadn't learned that people from those backgrounds sometimes struggle to get on. And so I was very much brought up to interact with everybody and that everyone is of value and everyone is important. And I had a lot of summer jobs when I was a teenager, one in particular in the local supermarket. Um, and I did all sorts of jobs there, depending on what was legal for my age. So I started when I was 13, but um, I was only allowed to work on the alcohol counter when I was 16, for example. But I was allowed to be on the cash register for when I was 14. wasn't allowed to slice meat until I, and I think I never was allowed to use the meat slice. I think you had to be 18. But I do remember on my hands and knees cleaning bits of chewing gum off the stone floors on one occasion under somebody nearly standing on me and being very disparaging. And I do remember looking up at them thinking, you have no idea who I am or what I could be. So, yeah, I guess perhaps those experiences shape you in different ways. But I don't know, we, you know, we, we, it, it's almost impossible to tell, isn't it? I think what I would say is to anybody of any age, you are worthy, you are worthwhile, and irrespective of where your career takes you, you have something hugely important to offer. I think that's absolutely right. I wondered if you could take us on the journey then from where you went to medical school with the desire to be a gynaecologist to how you are where you are now. <laughs> Well, I'll take you on the quick romp rather than the detailed inventory, Sarah, because I think, you know, 
it's been it's been a few years on the journey but so I went off to medical school to St George's in London I was incredibly happy there and I sort of found a real happy place in the sense that I got involved in the students union quite early on this was something I'd done in my sixth form college was help set up a branch of the NUS in fact because I I'm very much a don't just whinge do something if, if, if something's not right what can I do to help fix it um, whether that's fundraising or whether that's setting up social events or, or a, a representation um, and through the students union work there we got some really helpful wins um, and I ended up taking a sabbatical to be students union president in St George's and I was a perfectly average student I certainly wasn't a high flyer nor was I always desperately struggling either. I and mean, I worked hard, just like we all do in med school. And nothing dissuaded me from gynae oncology as a career. Although I in all the disciplines that had immediate contact with patients. Um, I knew that I wasn't going to be a lab scientist. I needed that patient interaction. But beyond that, I didn't narrow my horizons much. Um, and I, so I started a career I and mean, I chose the, to do the professorial surgical job as that would suit my, what I was doing better. My elective was in women's health in the Middle East. So I then started Nobs and Gynae. Uh, it was going well. It was interesting. I had a few life events along the way, which do make you stop and reflect because I think we do get into a bit of a treadmill uh, of this is what I must do next. This is what the, the playbook says we do. And that does make you really reflect, is this really the right thing? Um, but a, a couple of things came together after I'd been in Nobs and Gynae for a few years. And by this point, I was obviously a registered trainee. I was on my career path. I, I knew I liked the discipline. But I caused to reflect that actually I was getting a bit frustrated. It was a long road ahead and a lot of people still ahead of me. And then there was a major training crisis in Obsangani in the 1990s. There was effectively they halted career progression for five years. We all got written to by the college saying, sorry, um, got too many of you. There won't be any career progression for five years. Carry on. Or uh, Belgium and Canada are looking for registrars at that time. I'm quite stubborn when I need to be. And for that in itself wasn't enough to put me off. But it was my husband had quite a severe accident and was in a wheelchair for a while. And these things make you reevaluate. And so I, I thought, right, if this isn't quite right for me, I think I was probably getting frustrated um, that I, I wanted to do more than I was being able to do. And so I thought, right, we were having a bit of a refresh. My husband got a job in the Midlands. And I thought I would try out public health on the basis that I'm not going to do this for the patients one by one. I'm going to sort the whole flipping lot of them in one go. Uh, and, uh, so, right, let's just see what happens with this. So that was a really big moment to change direction so drastically. And on my way to getting a training number in public health, I was advised to get some experience in general practice. Um, and I stumbled across an academic training program in general practice, which was a pretty novel concept back then. And through a lot of serendipity, I ended up getting that at the University of Birmingham. The rest is history, really. I was placed. I had absolutely no choice or input into the practice I went to. I was just placed in a practice, the equivalent of what would be ST3 now, uh, because I'd done sufficient other jobs that counted. <laughs> and suddenly found myself in a really amazing training practice uh, in Birmingham. And within about four weeks, five weeks, I suddenly realised that I, I had come home I think it was when I saw my first patient for the second time. I thought, oh, I know this person. I know the background here. And I suddenly realized that that power of that connection and that continuity could be so amazing. And once I got there, they were involved in the Royal College of GPs. They suggested I went along to an RCGP meeting just as a way to meet people in the Midlands, really. And of course, I was enthusiastically welcomed and 
the next thing I knew, they were encouraging me to not just be a rep locally, but to be a rep nationally. And again, for me, it was partly about a great way to find out what was going on, get into this world that I didn't know an awful lot about at that stage. And the rest is sort of history in terms of RCGP. I never in a million years <laughs> dreamt that I would end up being chair of the whole uh, organisation. I did a lot of soul searching along the way. I think these sort of feelings of insecurity and imposter syndrome are always prevalent. And I remember waking up the morning after I was elected chair of the college GPs and lying in bed thinking, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? I can't do this. This is crazy. Uh, and then I looked at my phone and there were about 400 more messages that came in through the night. And it was just a kind of, well, I don't care what I can, whether I think I can do it or not, I'm doing it. So let's just crack on. I, think I, can, I can completely understand that feeling of, of it sounds like almost panic, um, but that realisation that your hat is over the wall and you have no choice but to follow. And yet, despite that feeling, if we fast forward to now, you have completed your term as the chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners, and you are now the chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges. So it goes to show that that feeling is not a good indicator of how we will truly perform. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that role. It's perhaps possibly something that other GPs don't know so much about as the RCGP. So what does it do? Brilliant question. Yes, I'm sorry. The Academy of Medical Royal Colleges is probably the most influential medical organisation the most doctors and nurses have never heard of. And we're an umbrella organisation for royal colleges and medical faculties. So all 23 of the royal colleges and medical faculties that award CCT are members of the Academy. And to be chair of the Academy, you have to have first been chair or president of one of the member organisations. So it's not common for a GP to do it. I'm only the second GP ever to hold the role. But it is immensely fascinating to work so closely with all the other disciplines. So, you know, as head of the Royal College of GPs, my focus was solely on, not solely, but almost, almost entirely on general practice and general practice patients. Whereas now taking a real step back and looking at the totality of medicine is fascinating. So you see the strengths and limitations of having membership organisations who fight for their bit of it. Because from the outside, it can be slightly mystifying to politicians why different groups of doctors are fighting for their bit so tightly when clearly to fight for all is stronger and better for the whole system. Um, So that has been a massive privilege. I have to say chairing the Royal College of GPs was the most enormous, uh, exciting privilege. It was a roller coaster journey. I mean, it really was amazing. And I remember waking up the morning after being elected and flooding, you know, with imposter syndrome. What on earth have they just done? I can't possibly do this. And within a day or two, suddenly you're just so busy with the job that you've forgotten those feelings. But they do come back at times to all of us at, at different stages. And we forget the journey we've all been on to get there, you know. So Everyone involved in Next Gen has gone through the whole A-level med school, making decisions about careers, processes, which means you've got a phenomenal range of experiences to draw upon already. Um, and I'm just a few decades down the line and therefore a few decades more experiences to add to. And does drawing on your experience help you when you have those imposter moments? Yes, definitely. Because I think back to when I was more junior, hearing other people sharing their imposter moments. I remember um, the University of Birmingham, my professor, uh, she was my research supervisor. So when I started, she was a senior lecturer. She became made prof when I was sort of a couple of years in. And I was so excited. I remember bounding along to her office on hearing the news. And she was sitting there and looking slightly shell-shocked, having a complete imposter syndrome moment. And she was very candid about it. And I remember thinking, 
but she's amazing. This is so long overdue. You know, she should have been a bit of a prof ages ago. Everyone knew that she should have been a prof by now. And so seeing that moment of self-doubt was really powerful for me, that the real realizing that she was very human too. And that these these feelings are not peculiar to oneself or to a stage of career. They are and I've certainly learned over the years that people who never have those feelings of self-doubt at any time are the people I worry more about than those who do have. But paralyzing self-doubt is something very different. I mean, there's a, there's a, there are real degrees of this. Like, in a sense, like stress and anxiety, a modest amount of stress and anxiety are helpful in terms of sharpening our focus and getting us motivated, whereas large amounts of them are not. So it's how we manage them, it's keeping them in context, and it's how, how and where to articulate it and making it a constructive thing and not an entirely negative thing. I absolutely agree. Thank you so much for sharing it. I do think it really helps to hear it from senior levels of the profession to know that you're not alone in having those blips in your life when you think, goodness me, what am I doing here? (laughs) What have I done? Absolutely. I just want to touch briefly on your time in the Royal College of GPs and thinking possibly a little bit ahead in the future of your current role. What were the highlights for you of your time as chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners? And when you look back in the future, what do you think will be the highlights of the role you have now? Oh, cracking question. So, I mean, for me, the biggest highlight of the RCGP role was actually the people I met. I mean, I met literally thousands of GPs and their teams up and down the country. I visited every region of the UK. So the RCGP splits the UK into 32 regions and I went to them all. Um, I got to go to places like the Isle of Man and Shetland and Orkney, you know, and the cool places that I wouldn't have never had the opportunity to go and to see general practice in action in those places. I remember being very struck speaking to some GPs up in Penrith and Cumbria about the isolation in, uh, in which they worked and inner city GPs in the East End of London and what they'd faced and done, but how they were using social prescribing and community assets in new and innovative ways, which really opened my eyes to the possibilities in that area. I mean, I've now got, so I guess one of the things I'll be proud of when I look back is how I became a flag bearer for the social prescribing movement. I'd be very proud of what we achieved with the NHS in England's long-term plan and the massive investments we secured for general practice. I'd be very proud of the wins we got in getting the whole of community NHS care covered by the National NHS Indemnity Scheme. Massive win. Um, and, and long overdue and something because I think I'd been treasurer of the Royal College of GPs before so one of my big wins there was getting um, membership examinations to be tax deductible so yeah quite different things that I'm proud of but it was really hard to I think you put your head very much above the parapet and what's interesting is where the, the the stones and missiles come from they're not always the quarters you expect Sometimes it's just aggressive, nasty lobby groups, but sometimes it's internal things that rather take you by surprise and that you didn't expect to be such a big thing. And social media, I mean, is a real force amplifier of some things that are just frankly wrong, but other things that would otherwise have been one or two letters in the post bag and suddenly you get a deluge of very personal, nasty stuff. And it's really interesting. And so learning to deal with that was a, a definitely a another plate in my armadillo-like armor that I have acquired and like I, I do lo- I'm, not, I'm sorry if I haven't shared my armadillo metaphor before but I think of myself as a little bit like an armadillo keeping close to the ground so I know what's going on I'm quite a soft underbelly you know I care and I feel stuff but I've had to acquire more and more plates as I've grown up there's more plates of armor and I don't 
want those plates of armour, but they are necessary for me to function properly. Uh, perhaps I look forward to taking off the armour-plated coat at one point, but for now it's probably safer where it is. But I recognise it for what it is. The real me underneath is still the soft me, so that's okay. I understand that duality of your professional role and your inner self. And I think one of the things we see about you, particularly in your sort of media presence, is that inner self does shine through. How do you maintain your sense of self in these roles? How do you communicate that to your members? I think there's something about my natural style. I'm a warm, friendly person, and that just comes through. So, I, And I haven't ever tried to suppress that bit of me. It, it means that I'm not as sophisticated and elegant as some other people in these roles might be. But it does mean that when you're interacting with other people who have any hint of warmth, they tend to respond to it. Now, occasionally you come across people who have no hint of warmth at all. And, and in those situations, I then square my shoulders and dial down the, the soft Helen and dial up the ridiculously efficient, you know, organised Helen who can just get stuff done. Yeah. But the vast majority of people warm to that. And so you, and I genuinely am interested in people. That's something about my personality type. You know, I am genuinely interested whether your cat is unwell or whether you, you know, whether your mum's got a problem and that's causing you stress. And and I will try and say to you the next time I see you, so how's mum or how's the cat? So so again, those build bridges with people. So I'm a connector of people. Um, Also, in terms of the other external stuff I do, did quite a lot of work with the media and for me I've always treated it like a consultation with a reasonably sensible but not necessarily technical patient so it's having a sensible conversation and turning the medical into the accessible and it's translating the medical world into the accessible world without being patronizing and it just seems to have worked for me I mean there are times where you definitely need to know your stuff so being prepared helps was the fabulous David Haslam who sort of said you know you've really got to know something you can't be completely ignorant in your world but being composed and keeping it simple are just as important yeah I'll pause it there because he also said about keeping it short as well (laughs) okay I want to to turn now to talk more generally about leadership if I may apart from armadillo do you have any other ways of describing your leadership style and what works for you yeah, Armadillo is pretty personal to me, isn't it? rather than a style. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm definitely um, a collaborative and an inclusive leader. So for me, a big thing is about working with great people or believing I'm working with great people and giving them the chance to prove it. So trusting people to do it, but also empowering them to know that I've got their back. So it's something I remember being really struck when my bosses over the years have said to me, yeah, I think you can do this. You've got this. And if it goes wrong or there are problems, my door's open. And definitely have tried to emulate that. There are a couple of really powerful examples of when I took on roles that were not necessarily appropriate for somebody at my stage, particularly in the academic world. And I was given the opportunity to run a trials unit. And that's the sort of thing usually taken on by somebody quite a senior grade in academia. And actually, I had skills for sorting stuff. I mean, a lot of it was about negotiating and having conversations with people about what we could and couldn't do. And that was really empowering. Um, And so I've tried to emulate that. It can be really hard to let go and let other people take things on, especially when you know you do it quicker and better yourself, certainly at first. But nobody's going to learn and grow if they don't have that space to do so. Um, I try and achieve decisions by consensus. Um, 
And I guess for me, the skill, therefore, is creating the safe spaces for people to have difficult conversations. And to do that, you've got to, people have got to know each other and trust each other. So relationship building, create the safe space, but facilitate the difficult stuff. So make the difficult not impossible. So giving people that hope that we can find a way through this. And occasionally then getting a bit more draconian, as in we're not leaving till we sort this. This has to be sorted. This is not going in the too difficult bucket anymore. Uh, it's a it's very easy to push things into the too difficult pile or oh, we'll, we've run out of time to sort that one out um is not an, is not a good enough excuse uh, and and when you see people who are prepared to do the difficult stuff it's fantastic and I really love to work with them because I know that if we if, if a couple of us are prepared to do that we really can move mountains other things that I do, occasionally recognizing that of course you do have to put on your red cape and pants and be the leader that people need you to be but I tend to reserve that for the exception, not the rule. That sort of heroic leadership has a time and a place. And certainly in the pandemic, there have been moments where people have needed it. But finally, I think recognising when you are a leader, ultimately the buck will stop with you. You have to carry the can. And if you cannot achieve the consensus that you seek, uh, then sometimes you just have to just own it. Square your shoulders and just get on and do. And there's one very powerful example of that. It was around... Uh, Brexit of all things when I was chair of the Royal College of GPs where I had the most phenomenal team of officers I mean the brightest most brilliant most dedicated group of people but they were fundamentally divided on how we should move forward next council had given us a mandate for what they wanted us to do but it was quite loose and it was how we defined that and there was a spectrum of views uh, from you know placard waving and storming parliament through to sitting back and doing absolutely nothing and trying to reverse decisions that have been made and I took, on reflection, I took too long. I let it go on too long to try and reach consensus. Um, and in the end, it was just, right, thank you all. That's been great. Stop now. I have to do this my way. And there, there was this sort of stunned silence of, oh, well, we, we, you're never going to agree. This is fundamental. You're never going to agree. Therefore, we have to do it my way because I'm the one who's going to carry the can. Um, and it was a really good learning experience for me. And uh, I have been quicker to reach that point subsequently to recognise it and learn from it. I see. I think hard choices are a, a factor of leadership and particularly the more senior you become, the more of them there are. Do you have a strategy that helps you in those moments when you're called upon to make that tough call to go against perhaps consensus or to accept that consensus can't be found? Yes, I do. Uh, so I've learned to trust my instinct. So if, if a fast decision has to be made, then I trust my instinct. Uh, mercifully, it is almost always right. I've also learned that if I can possibly squeeze a bit more time out of a situation to reflect and to seek as wide a counsel as I can, I make the best decisions that way. I've also learned that there are times where you, you just have to own a decision, even if it's not entirely what you want, the consensus agree, then if you're working with wise people and you trust them, then the times you really have to stand by that and trust them. And finally, there are times where you make a decision and it is the wrong decision and you have to be mature enough to own that it is incorrect and to change direction. And mercifully, I've never had to do a U-turn, but there have certainly been times where we've had to take a sidestep and change direction. And I think being quite honest about that, you know, new information came in there, you know, I had made this decision or we had made this decision actually in the light of new information we're going to change that decision you see in medicine we do that all the time 
you know, we get the ultrasound scan result and we thought we were going to be referring to this consultant. The scan comes back and, oh, my gosh, we're going to do that consultant. OK, that's fine. We, we think nothing of it in our medical lives, but it seems to be in political and leadership terms. You know, U-turn or changing direction seems to be a very dirty word. That's very disparaging. And that's rather a sad reflection on the way our world works and the way we portray leadership. But it's, you, you know, you've just got to own it sometimes and say, yep, mea culpa. We didn't quite get it right the first time, but we're getting it better this time. Help us in the future to make the better decisions quicker. Absolutely. I do think that being a GP has taught me to say, I don't know much more in my day-to-day life and then make a plan for how we're going to find out and sort things out. Do you think that being a GP helps you to lead? Massively. I mean, the most phenomenal transferable set of skills from being a GP. The, the biggest one I always say is about being a translator. You know, we, we go to medical school uh, we learn to speak medicine. Yeah, we speak science and medicine at medical school. And along the way, we learn to start to speak patient, but general practice really hones those speaking patient skills. The medical political journey then helps you learn to speak the language of medical politics and then party politics, which is quite different than the language of treasury, or at least the dialect of treasury is very different again. Um, the language of medicine or from an organisational point of view. So NHS England honestly speak a different language from frontline clinicians. And once you identify this, and that's the metaphor I use as different languages, suddenly realise one of my biggest jobs is to be a translator is massively powerful. So, and, and that's a very translatable skill from general practice. So that one, time management, you know, because we have so many consultations and so much to get through, we get stuff done, we crack on and we do. We're very good at recognising a good shortcut or strategies when we see them. And in general practices, we do delegate a lot. We delegate to others in our teams. We're reliant on our clinical colleagues and our administrative colleagues. And so I think, and because certainly in the practice, I mean, we have a high throughput of trainees as well. And so you're constantly trusting people, empowering people, which perhaps gives us more confidence in that space. Um, so yeah, fantastic transferable skills. And um, I think our observational skills probably are another one as well. You know, I don't know about you, but one of the things I miss about our remote consulting is I don't observe the patient in the waiting room, walking to the consultant room, the way they close the door, the way they sit down. But observation is a hugely important skill. And of course, when you're only seeing somebody from the shoulders up on a Zoom call or a Teams call, uh, you definitely miss a lot of that extra information and nuance. So What I wanted to talk a little bit about now then is something that you've mentioned in various ways throughout our conversation so far. And it's sort of feedback and it's talking about the feedback you receive that may be unexpected, may be challenging, may be difficult to hear. How how do you usefully deal with feedback in your roles? (laughs) Oh, this is something I've really learned over the years about feedback. So I'm, I'm at the stage in my life now where I honestly tell you that feedback is a gift. Um, a really powerful gift. And I am very grateful for feedback. And over the years, I've taken feedback in different ways. As I, I told you, I'm an armadillo with a soft underbelly. So when we get feedback and we have soft underbellies, it can be quite hurtful. Um, it can be, I mean, feedback that just tells you how marvellous you are is very nice, but it is considerably less useful than feedback that points out areas where you could improve. So I think this first thing is, what sort of feedback am I receiving and why am I receiving it? Is this my mate telling me that I'm fabulous because they're my mate and they know I'm feeling a bit down. I need to be told I'm fabulous. Okay, that's lovely. But somebody that you respect turning around and saying you did a great job there. And I think with just a bit of this, you could have done even better. That's, that's dynamite. I mean, that's really powerful stuff. So 
So Helen's strategy for feedback. First of all, how so, so it is always a gift. Whatever you get is a gift. Now, you do not have to like the gift. You do not have to adore the gift. So if, we, if we're working on the gift metaphor, I get presents from people that I just don't like the gift. You know, it's ugly. It's useless. It doesn't work in my house. But it was still given uh, to me. And I will always be a gracious receiver of a gift. So I will thank people for feedback. I will think about what to do with the feedback. And then I will decide whether it's going to sit on the mantelpiece and be looked at and used every day, or whether it's going to go in the charity bag to be passed on to somebody else who can do better with it. Um, but most feedback has nuggets of very useful stuff in it, even if some of it is wide of the mark. And then it's that in what spirit was it given? So was it somebody exasperated or was it somebody who genuinely had volunteered it? Or was it somebody where I had sought out their view? And each of those gives a different response. So an example, I mean, so as, as a consequence, because I value feedback, I give feedback quite a lot. And there was a situation a few months back where somebody very senior sent out a letter, a wide ranging letter, and I thought it was amazing. And I reached out spontaneously and I said, I just think you got that. You absolutely nailed that. That was powerful. It was spot on. Thank you. And I got the most lovely response from them saying that they'd agonized over sending it. They'd had big discussions with people in their team about whether they should send this letter. And they were delighted by the feedback because it was unsolicited. And it was, I mean, it, it was effusive, but it was also genuine. I mean, it wasn't kind of, you're my mate. I think you're wonderful. This was, this was, I, I was quite specific in the feedback that I gave. And if I see somebody make a hash of something or not do something terribly well, it's that, right, now what feedback can I give them that will be useful without demoralizing them further? Because intelligent people know when they've messed up, yeah? They don't need me to say, well, the, the sound quality was appalling and you, you turned up late. But they may be helped by the, have you thought of having a glass, you know, always have a glass of water handy and test your kit before you go. And by the way, I recommend a really good microphone type conversation. The feedback that's hardest to work with is when somebody has been asked for feedback and given it, but may not be in the, the best headspace to be kind to you. And so it can come back as quite harsh. But if you've got the courage to deal with that feedback um, and try and pick the best out, because we always see the worst in it, we take it desperately personally. But if we can pick over and go, so what's really going on here? There can be some really powerful nuggets. And I certainly remember a situation when I had clinical feedback once. Uh, from somebody and they were the, the nub of it was that the other stuff I did was getting in the way of interactions in the practice and once I'd unpicked it and got over the hurt that I was feeling actually there was something really quite important there about us naming the fact that the external stuff I did did impact on people in the practice and in which way could I we, we, we all be much more open about it. And they felt able to say, no, Helen, please don't let the TV cameras in because actually it stresses some of us out. Or for me to communicate better with them, to bring them involved and get them more involved and enjoy a bit of the fun of it all was actually very useful. So it's a gift. You don't have to like all gifts. You certainly don't have to leave all gifts on your mantelpiece to stare at them lovingly every day. You can just pass them on. I think those are some really helpful strategies for us all to consider. And I think the concept of thinking about giving feedback in, in constructive and helpful ways is really important for people to spend some time thinking about, definitely. Well, it works well with what we talked about, about empowering other people. Mm. Because if you're not just saying to them, actually, I trust you to do this job, my door is open, come back. When people do come back, it's the thank you for coming back with this. I think that's absolutely spot on that you did come back. 
And many times people come back and all they need is a gentle nudge, but occasionally they do need feedback. And if you can just pause and think about how useful can I make it? I think there's another thing here for me about understanding people and personality types and understanding how people like feedback um, and how they want you want to interact with them. I'm married to a profound introvert in the Myers-Briggs sense of personality. I'm a proper extrovert. I'm very happy if you'd have bound up to me and talked to me directly. My husband would rather I just emailed him and asked him what he'd like for lunch rather than me going and asking him, you know, just... And once you understand how people like to be communicated with, that also really helps when it comes to dealing with feedback also. Understanding that some people detest the thought of open plan working and public conversations and sitting around in a circle. Um, And for others, that's a really fantastic way of doing stuff. And that can be very illuminating. If you take a bit of time to invest in, once you've understood yourself, understanding others, that's, I'm a huge advocate of that. Definitely. And I think being a GP makes you really well placed to detect those nuances that help that be a much more positive conversation. I want to turn to perhaps life a bit outside of these roles and responsibilities that you have. When you're doing so much, when you have to be on point, on form and supercharged for all of these things, how do you do that? How do you balance your life? How do you make the space and the energy to be who you are publicly? (laughs) Oh, I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask about this balance thing. I'm not brilliant at balance, but I, 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 well, okay. I have set, I got through it because I've set a lot of boundaries, Sarah. I have said, okay. I, so for example, my clinical days are pretty sacrosanct. On a clinical day, I am being a GP. And the most I try and do on clinical days is quick scan of email. Is there anything urgent? Quick scan of message. And so all the people who I work closely with know that if they need to get hold of me on an urgent day, they have to send me a text message because that's the thing I will keep the eye on. And that may be look at your email or look at your email at 1247 because there's something important. I need a decision. And I will very occasionally do a media interview on a, if I can do it safely from the surgery on a clinical day, but probably it's only secretary of state that I, or possibly the head of, as chair for chief exec NHS England, that sort of level would I cancel patients for? I just think that is, you know, I'm first and foremost a clinician. And I think people respect me for it. Uh, and respect other clinical leaders for it. In terms of the other stuff, so I always have a list. You know, I live live by the list, um, and whether that's the meetings in the diary plus other stuff I have to do today list, but it's also a list of, right, whose birthdays are in September that I have to get birthday cards lined up. So I'm a great godmother because I never forget birthdays because I have a system and I stick to it. And it's really easy to not prioritize myself and my relationships and my family. And so I have to work at that and I have to be reminded. And I'm very lucky I've got a fantastic husband who reminds me about these things. And he knows he's got my permission to say, you really need to take a bit of time out. And my mum does nag me endlessly about taking more time out. Um, I have learned that the things that really help me are getting out in the fresh air. I need to be in my garden every day. I need fresh air every day. I've learned to value myself and understand what, what I need and so I'm much better about taking holidays and turning the phone off than I was. They've gone through times and it's not, you know, a few years ago, I had a few horrendous holidays where I couldn't relax and unwind. And my husband's threat that he would throw my phone in the swimming pool. And he, I can tell he really meant it was actually very powerful and helpful. So knowing yourself is important, being kind to yourself, because remembering if you're not kind to yourself, how can you be kind to other people? I mean, really, it, it, it is a thing. There's martyrdom doesn't work well in in the long term it's a short-term state of being not a long-term one and I've learned to invest in myself a bit 
not, not about material things, but that's actually, you know, I need headspace. I'm going out. And maybe for me, gardening is actually really helpful. I love just getting out in the garden. And when I'm stressed out, I think possibly it satisfies my desire to get some physical exercise because I spend too long sitting at a desk. Um, being outdoors and achieving something that's got a medium and longer term benefit. So whether it's beautiful flowers or plants that I can enjoy months down the line. But there are better people at me doing this. I never understand how people who've got kids and caring responsibilities manage to juggle it all, Sarah. It's really not easy. And I don't, and I think people who pretend it's easy are fooling nobody. I agree. I definitely don't think any of us find it easy, but it's really interesting to hear your strategies. So boundaries, having a schedule and making some you time and, and some passion projects maybe or some time away from the office all sound really, really healthy choices. I want to wrap up, if I may, just by doing some quick fire questions, something a bit more fun. So fill in the blank. The best thing about being a GP is? The patience. Having a plan or trusting serendipity? Both. Got to have a plan. Got to have space for serendipity. If you try and do either, you'll explode. Um, This is potentially a divisive question for a Welsh person. Football or rugby? Oh, rugby every time. That's really easy. (laughs) Who is your hero? Oh, that's so hard. Um, Barack Obama, as in terms of a leader, there are so many. In, I mean, David Haslam in terms of general practice, Iona Heath in terms of thought leadership. There are, I have, I have loads of heroes. I mean, in terms of political leaders at the moment, I'm very taken by Jacinta Ardern in, in New Zealand. I, I, I can't just have one hero. I've not been, I'm not a hero worshipper, but I am a respecter of many. A respecter of many. What is something people often get wrong about you? <laughs> I think sometimes people who don't know me underestimate me when they first meet me uh, because I'm very warm and very friendly and very nice and they mistake that for um, a lack of substance. And I think that's okay because I can reasonably quickly establish that with people. The titles I have now help to diffuse some of that so people expect different things from me but I think probably people underestimate me to start with is the one I assume underestimate you at your own peril I suspect (laughs) your words not mine Sarah what is the best piece of advice you have been given have a go Uh, give yourself space to have a go I think it was when I was struggling to make really big decision about whether to go to be apply for a national role as treasurer of the Royal College of GPs. It was David Haslam who said to me, when I am on my deathbed, hopefully when I'm very old, I don't want to look back on my life and regret not having tried something. Um, and, and building on that, what others sort of frame, helped me frame it was the give yourself permission to try and fail. Because if you don't have permission to fail, you'll never try. And if you don't try, you'll never know. And we are blessed in our careers that for most of us, most things we try will work out. Um, And that's a pretty good balance. It is. What book do you recommend to everyone at the moment? It's a terrible time to ask me that question because I'm reading a massive sci-fi opera, which which is drawing me and I'm reading. I'm rereading it and I think it's called The Evolutionary Void but I can't even remember the front name of it because it's on the Kindle so it's a bad time of year to ask me Sarah (laughs) in general books that I recommend to people um, if you've never done anything about personality testing there there is a really easy book to use to help you get into that The Art of Speed Reading People The Art of Speed Reading People 
what guilty pleasure could you not live without right now? My convertible car. Uh, in the age of lockdown, where travel has, particularly when travel was limited, just the when effectively we live in quite a rural place, where effectively the only time we could justify being out in the, out in the car was to and from work, just to be able to put the top down and to see the trees and feel the breeze was just wonderful. Gosh, that sounds terribly awful of me, isn't it? But sounds rather fun as well. And finally, what three pieces of advice would you give next gen GPs who are starting their leadership journey? Seek out advice and support from somebody you trust. Be kind to yourselves. I think the system won't always be kind to you, so be kind to yourselves. And give yourself permission to fail, because if you have permission to fail, then you'll instinctively have a go at stuff. Brilliant. Professor Helen Stokes-Lampard, thank you so much for giving your time to the Next Gen cast. We really appreciate how much you support NextGen and GPs, and it has been a pleasure talking to you today. Well, bless you, Sarah. The pleasure's been mine. It's always fab working with NextGen. You are the brightest and the most brilliant bunch of people I have ever known. So thank you all, and good luck. Thank you very much. So that was episode 27 with Dame Helen Stokes-Lampard. And thank you so much to Sarah Jane Armitage, one of our NextGen GPs in Nottingham, for leading that interview. And some great advice there, I thought, from Helen on the imposter syndrome, making decisions as a leader and giving and receiving feedback. So that's it for another week. If you want to keep in touch with NextGen and hear about our events and programmes, just sign up to our monthly bulletin. The link is in the show notes. And we'll see you next time for the NextGen cast. Bye.